0: many people in the world suffer from abject poverty, from difficulties that I have seen but cannot imagine. There is a fundamental intelligence to people, a fundamental thoughtfulness and compassion and hope. This is really profound life lesson.
1: When Ben Ayres was 20 years old, he took $300 and moved from the USA to a remote village in Nepal. And I met Ben just a few years later when I was 20, and he is the one who inspired me to devote my entire career to human rights. He showed me that bringing our unique talents and giftings to a social issue can truly change the world. I know, that sounds cheesy, but it's real. In this episode, he teaches us what effective human rights work looks like and how being the change we wanna see in the world really is the key to unlocking our purpose. I'm serious, y'all, it's it's really good, it's really good. I'm excited for you to hear it. I'm excited for you to meet Ben because he has been so inspirational in my life. So let's get started. So you and I met a really long time ago back in Kathmandu. I don't even know how we met exactly. I was there on a medical missions trip with a team of doctors and somehow they knew you, I guess they had already done some work.
0: Well, that was when, yeah, that was Dr. Scott. Scott was his name?
1: Yes. Dr. Scott Smith.
0: Yeah. I'd gotten out of college and sold my car and was just kind of trying to help orders on climbing and trekking expeditions, improve their workplace conditions. And I was just living out in the Nepali villages. And I think I had translated for Scott. Like I'd done something for him ahead of time. And so that's how I got involved. I was, I just was there. I was like the random white dude in that village. And so I was there like helping translate or whatever. And I think that's when I met you.
1: Yeah. I had decided to come to Nepal because I grew up with a white family and I wanted to meet people that looked like me. And I went to Calcutta first and then we came up to Nepal. I also had a fear of heights. So I had this in my mind that if I could do the Mount Everest base camp track that I would get over it. But I did it twice and it still never worked.
0: Yeah, different systems, I think, though.
1: (laughs) How many times have you been up to base camp?
0: Oh, I don't know. To base camp, you know, I've never climbed on Everest, partially by choice. Yeah, I mean, I like to say that I've never climbed Everest because I don't necessarily, because it's a, it's, a, the industry is problematic. But I know that I had a chance to climb it two years ago and declined, and I have been regretting that. So I can't, I can't really stick to that. But I've been up to base camp and up in that area, I mean, more times than I can count, a dozen more than a dozen. Wow. I lived in that region, the Khumbu, in that valley below Mount Everest for about five years. And so there was a lot of running around and exploring that I was able to do when I wasn't trying to help porters.
1: So to set the scene a little bit, you went to Nepal as a junior in university. Is that the scene? And then you were on a study abroad. What happened? You just decided to stay there. I hear there's like a $300 some amount and you were like farming to make this happen.
0: Yeah, it's funny to look back on my life in those times.
1: And you had to be, what, 20?
0: Yeah, I was 20 years old. I was doing the study abroad program. And I had traveled to Germany for like a few weeks in high school. But other than that, I had never left America. And I went went to Nepal because I was interested in climbing. And it also was about as far away from rural New Hampshire as you could get. And when I did that study abroad program, it just totally rewired how I saw the world. And I wasn't ready to, I wasn't finished. I had, it brought up so many more questions for me. And I especially got connected during that trip was really when I became kind of obsessed with porters with, so in in Nepal, especially at that time, the vast majority of the country is roadless and people live in these communities that are three, five, seven days walk away from the nearest road or store and so the way that goods would travel in and out of these communities were on people's backs. It was still not effective. There wasn't enough fodder and grains to be able to keep pack animals so people did all that work and they carry with this tump line on their forehead and you know I still remember when I first saw that it seemed to me like that was the most basic form of labor in the world. It's a rope on your forehead and you are a pack animal and That was the exact opposite of this experience that I had of a privileged white male going to a very good college in America. And I ended up spending a lot of time with porters. I tried to work as a porter.
1: I did see that, that you had tried to work as a porter.
0: Yeah, I just went out. I bought one of those tump lines, and I just went out to this very remote area and bought a bag of rice and, like, walked with these guys. And the porters, what surprised me about that is that I expected a lot of people to challenge what I was trying to do. I expected – and the carrying was way harder than I thought it would be, and I was carrying a third of what –
1: And you're tall. Like, you're a tall guy.
0: Yeah, I'm, like, 6'1", and these porters are, like, (laughs) 5'1". Like, they're very small people.
1: And hella strong. And hiking in flip-flops, like sandals.
0: Yeah, or barefoot. Yeah. And so I thought I was awesome. I was carrying, like, 40 kilos of rice. I thought I was – Super, super badass. But the porters I was walking with were carrying 120 kilos, 250 pounds, double their body weight. And the thing that really struck me wasn't just their physical strength, but was the fact that, and this sounds really almost pedantic, but what really struck me was they kind of took me in, which they didn't have to do. You know, I'm a liability. I barely speak Nepali. I'm this gangly white guy. They were patient with me. I had two main passions in my life at that point. One was poetry and one was climbing. And I kind of went to Nepal to like explore the climbing side of it. But these porters, they were all poets. They would create their own songs and that ended up being like our discourse. We'd sit and they'd be rolling these cigarettes from tree leaves that they'd pick along the way. And they were the most intelligent, thoughtful, funny, jovial people. And I know that of course everybody in the world shares those qualities. But for me, the immensity of their labor was a barrier that kept me from understanding that until I experienced it. And that lesson for me was a profound lesson in the equality of people and the fact that even though many of us, many people in the world suffer from abject poverty, from difficulties that I have seen but cannot imagine, there is a fundamental intelligence to people, a fundamental thoughtfulness and compassion and hope. It's just this really profound life lesson. And it struck me so deeply that I went back to America to finish college and limped across the finish line. My head was just in the clouds. And I immediately, I sold everything I had, bought a plane ticket back to Nepal and stayed there until the money ran out. And by then I was in it to win it. I had started this nonprofit that I called Porter's Progress that was working with porters, trying to help their working conditions and their lives. And I went back to America to try to find a job that would give me enough money to buy a plane ticket. And I also, by this point, was really fascinated with labor, not having grown up, sort of experiencing labor. And I ended up milking cows on a dairy farm for a long time. And then that was a job I could leave when I needed to go. That became my routine for many, many years. And that was during that time that I met you.
1: I've had many a job as well to support my human rights work. I worked in, oh my gosh, I was the person that stood in Times Square with Charmin toilet paper. Oh, nice! And I gave it out to people during Christmas. So that was one of them. I was a Martha Stewart bathroom attendant.
0: Interesting. And,
1: gosh, what else do I did? I did some like real random gigs to make my human rights work work. Yeah.
0: I think that's a beautiful thing as well about the American experience of your 20s is when you're obsessed, you can pursue this dream and make it work no matter what. And I think that passion is something that probably you and I shared at that time in our lives.
1: When we met, I was searching for my biological family. And I've said this to you before many times, but you're the reason I got into human rights work. I was so amazed and inspired by how young you were and how you found this very unique niche of an issue and problem and really worked with the community to try and solve it. And one of the things that you've said in the past that I thought was so beautiful to me was that these people that you were working with, they had less than you, but they had the same intellectual wealth that you had in the same depth of experience and emotion. And when I was walking up and down the mountain, I was like, wow, these people have, they're the same age, they're funny and smart, but they just weren't given the same access to education or privilege that I've had and I do think that there is this misconception by people who have not had the opportunity and privilege like you said it is a privilege to be able to go and see these communities in person that there's this otherness like oh they must be poor or they forget that these are really smart funny people just like you and I.
0: Absolutely and as humans we come out of the box a little bit afraid of the unknown. And especially in America, where our lives are in the West, where our lives are comfortable and we're isolated, it's scary to confront that reality, the reality that somebody who is living a life that we don't want, who is suffering, who doesn't have access to things, who is, you know, a typical question is how people engage with the homeless community in an American city. Yeah. Nobody wants that life. Right. More or less. Nobody wants that life. And people are afraid to engage with that because somehow then you have to confront the fact that that could be you. But I think at the end of the day, when, when you do engage with that and you realize that that could be you, that I think that there is a lot about our society that really prizes wealth and status is, our status is sort of demonstrated through what we wear and what we drive, who we associate with that all discourages us from that curiosity about other people's experiences. But once you take that little leap and you start asking people about their experiences in your lives and you discover our commonality, it's actually a superpower because it helps you understand. It's made me so grateful for all that I've had. It's made me much more able to do with less. And also it's given me some of the most rich and meaningful relationships and friendships in my life because simply because our backgrounds are so different. And then every little commonality becomes this great cause for celebration. And that's the fuel, honestly, that's kind of kept me in Nepal for 23 years now. Last year I reached the point where I spent more of my life there than I have anywhere else.
1: Something that you've also talked about is how you went in to this work with a very strong perspective about what you could do to help these communities. And then you talked about how there was a moment when the community started to take ownership of everything. How was that for you?
0: I mean, that's happened, I think, it's sort of a natural cycle. I think it happened in many different, it's happened a number of times. Initially with Porter's Progress, that organization grew, but also Nepal went through some political changes where Being a foreigner involved in the labor reform movement with politicized trade unions and so on and so forth was not the right place for me. Nepal kind of took over that space in a way. That was hard for me because that was my entire identity. And after I stepped out of Porter's Progress, I continued working in Porter communities with an organization called the Z Foundation out of Colorado. Basically, we continued the work I'd started with Porter's Progress. And I did that for over a decade. And I've just stepped out of that role this year. And that also was really hard for me. But the hard parts about those experiences of when this work that maybe I was a catalyst for, when local communities take it over, it's such a bittersweet thing, but it's something that I'm so proud of. And I'm finding it's getting easier over time. One of the most important skills in life, if you want to help other people, it's not about creating that change through force. It's actually creating that change through creating space. And it's about letting go. And the path I've chosen in my life has been a training course for me in letting go. And with Porter's Progress, it was painful to let go because my identity was wrapped up in that. That's who I was and there. It wasn't there anymore. And I had to reinvent myself and I'm going through that process again, but it's easier. And I'm proud of, the people being able to start something that that is not dependent on me forever, that's that can go on and live its own life. And you know, and it's there's a little part of us, our egos. I mean, people who get into this work, we definitely are sometimes driven by a sense of wanting to help others, which is an ego based thing. So there's this little there's a toddler inside of me that's that's like, Well, what am I now? What about me?
1: Yeah. I completely, I feel you on that a lot. After you and I met, then I started getting involved in anti-human trafficking work because I saw a child labor in Calcutta and felt so frustrated and like it was such a shame because in my case, there were street kids that were coming into orphanages, but when they aged out at 16, then they would have to go back on the street. And I thought, wow, what a waste. Is there a way to provide vocational training or something that can keep them on their path so they don't have to do that. And so I helped a team start organization in Bangkok that ran for about 7 years and it was so life-giving, you know. I would do anything like give away toilet paper in Times Square in the dead of winter just to be able to do that work. And eventually the survivors were able to take charge of their own organization and they they really got, you know, like we've talked about they we worked ourselves out of a job, and that's the best case scenario for any nonprofit. But then it was like, I have worked myself out of a job, and and now what? So I'm
0: <laughs> totally careful what you wish for. Yeah.
1: What's the difference between finding purpose when you were younger and how it feels now as you're evolving?
0: That's a good. That's a good question. I've really loved growing older. Honestly, like I think. When I was younger at Finding Purpose, I really was trying to make my mark on the world. And that was based around me constructing this idea of my identity. And that idea of my identity was somebody who helped other people. And it's a beautiful thing in one hand because it drives us to do these extraordinary things like selling toilet paper in Times Square, working 16 hour days milking cows on a dairy farm. And we create these stories and legends around ourselves And it's good to know in life what you can do. Like, it's good to know you can work that hard if you need to. And if you're passionate, you learn a lot about power. You learn a lot about energy. But now that I've, you know, grown older and had decades of this under my belt, I've started to learn about the power of things like management software (laughs) and like learning from others and practices and protocols and being a manager of people. And being a collaborator with other people. And, you know, my approach to my life and my work, which are, is much less, I guess my life and my work have always been melded together, but there's always been a conflict there. To a degree, there is a bit of a martyrdom that happens with young people and nonprofits where you, you really take pride in all you've given up to help other people yeah, and I've lost that conflict now and I'm grateful for what I have and how I'm doing. I'm grateful for the fact that I've survived in the industry for this long. You know, it's a hard, nonprofit is a hard industry. It's hard to raise funds. It's hard to keep things going. And I'm much more mellow. And as I've let go of my own role, it's created room for me to become more curious about other people, which has made me more effective. And Again, it's about this, like letting go. And what I would say is that I've had the privilege of being able to really think about how do you change somebody else's life? Like actually at the end of the day, if you want to make the world a better place, how do you do it? And it's not about, it's not something you can do. Um, it's not something that you can create, but it's something that we all change the world every day. It's the whole a butterfly flaps his wings and that creates a tornado. And we all are part of this crazy complex system. So it's not a question of how do I change the world. The question is in what manner am I going to influence this chaotic system? And that becomes an inward process. And the work that I've done in Nepal that's been so important hasn't been the funds I've raised, it hasn't been the mechanisms of or the organizations I've created or the people I've managed or the bridges and schools and drinking water systems that I've built. The most important impact I've had in Nepal is that I've made a lot of friends and we created an energy and a hope that has spread to other people and that's all happened by example. And that's what I think is the most important thing we can do as people in this world is to cultivate a way of being. Be the change you want to see in the world. It's so cliche but you You cultivate a way of being that others then, in their own volition, follow and want to emulate in their own life. And then that gets passed on. And I think that's how actually change happens.
1: That's so funny. I literally have that quote written down. And I say, like, it is so cliche, but a lot of your work now is really about encouraging the young people who come to you and say, just like I was years and years ago, wow, this is so amazing. I'm so inspired. I want to change the world. And you say, young people come to us and say, I want to change the world. And I get that so often. So I say, so you want to change the world, get a better idea of changing yourself. And it sounds like humility is really... A big part of this, the irony, of course, in wanting to be the change that you want to see in the world is actually really about humility and getting really, really honest with yourself.
0: Totally. It's about humility. It's about curiosity. Jess, when we look at your process, you know, it's funny how I remember some years after we first met, you and I had a conversation on the phone and you, that was the first time you told me that I had sort of inspired you to go on that path. And that's always puzzled me because I have no idea how I did that. Like I wasn't – I didn't think that I, that, that I meant that much to you. You know, I thought that we were friends and we hung out a couple times in Kathmandu. And to hear that that had
1: – I got very drunk on my <laughs> 21st birthday and yeah. <laughs> vomited for the first time. Yeah, so we have a very special relationship.
0: I shared that ritual with you, yeah.
1: All these pinnacle milestones <laughs> in my life kind of revolve around our friendship.
0: That's true. That's true. Well, I'm looking forward to your 40th birthday party. We'll repeat the experience. But, but, but what I mean to say by that is like, when you look at the way your life changed, it was, I was a, a person at a time that helped you take an inward journey. And you were there looking for your family. You were there looking for yourself. And I just happened to be there at a time that it opened a door for you to explore yourself. And that's how you then went on to help so many people and continue to do so. That's how that process of change really works, is, is just about you do the work yourself. And then it, the people whose lives I've changed the most, I have not been aware of. And I'm sure the same applies to you. And I think that applies to our parents. I think that applies to, you know, the porters in Nepal. They, they changed my life so profoundly. And it didn't. I'm sure that didn't occur to them. And that's how it is, actually, in the world. And when you when you know when you're counting the metrics of the lives you've changed, when you're in that type of it, of an industry, which there is kind of this very structured nonprofit industry, and you're looking for the metrics, and you're looking for you know how many people have you changed, and how many children are no longer in child labor, so on and so forth. You've actually miss the point you've you know what I mean like you're reducing the process to something that's mechanical and that's just not how the world changes. That's actually part of what perpetuates the inequities that have created the problem in the first place. But you can imagine a world where we can all imagine a world where if people approached each other differently, that would prevent a lot of the challenges we face. And that process has to start inside yourself.
1: Something that we get asked a lot as an organization is about this idea of finding purpose and finding healing and how that all works together. If you don't have purpose, then you don't have the incentive necessarily to heal and how that is such a core component of your work. And I think something that was surprising to me was that you had mentioned that $100,000 was raised for a project that you were a part of. And almost all of that came from community members and I'm really struck by that. These community members aren't making US salaries or salaries from the West.
0: Sure, sure. And there's a lot of examples of that in in the work I've done or things I've been a part of in Nepal, both recently with even some of the response to the COVID crisis in Nepal. There were groups I was working with that raised a lot of money from within Nepali communities using new online tools and all that stuff, which is really exciting. One of the things to look at, you know, to get into some of the nuts and bolts of how you actually, again, go about changing or being a participant in change is if you don't have that local buy-in in what you're doing, it's an indicator that maybe what you're doing is not that effective or not that valuable. And so the process of work that we that I did in Porter Communities with the Z Foundation is I created this model where we help those communities come up with like a 10-year vision for what they wanted. These are very remote communities. When I started working there, they were five, six days away from a road, subsistence farming, very poor materially. And we did kind of two things that were really important. The first thing is when we started working with communities, when I started working with communities, instead of going in and saying, what's your biggest problem? We didn't do that because that perpetuates this scarcity model, It perpetuates this idea that there's something wrong with you. You go in and say, well, what is the best thing about your village? Sure, you're a small poor village on the middle of a hillside in the middle of nowhere in Nepal. But what's the best thing about this place? Well, we have this culture. We have this incredible natural resources. We have this special strain of millet. We have these legends. We have this unique language. Oh, wow, amazing. So then you start being curious about what makes people uh, excited about themselves. You start being curious about a process. And then you say, well, what are your dreams? Where do you want to be in 10 years? Okay, well, we want to create We want schools, we want drinking water systems. You naturally find the solutions to the most pressing problems you face without having to reinforce the fact that people are struggling and are poor. That roadmap became our working mandate for that community for the next five to seven years. And so the communities picked the process, we involved them in it the whole time. And so when we went and did a project, we were finding funding for something that those villages wanted and had decided on. And accordingly, they were very willing to contribute time and labor. And so, you know, at at Z, over the last 13 years that I worked with them, community members contributed over 100,000 days of labor. And these are some of the poorest villages in Nepal. And if you value that labor at local rates, which is like $6 a day, they were the largest single donor to those projects.
1: For people listening, can you sort of set the scene? Because we can hear that, and I think, like, I've seen it. But when I came back to the States, for example, and talked to people about what I experienced, it's, it's hard to conceptualize it. Can you sort of set the scene when you say abject poverty, or when you say remote villages, what is Nepal like? What are those valleys like?
0: Yeah. So Nepal is a very small country trapped between sort of smushed between India and China, that's where the Himalayas are. And basically the whole country is like corrugated. I mean, there's, there's barely any flat space in the country. And over centuries, many, many different small villages have developed basically through all the arable land. And so it's a tiny country, the size of like a US, an average US state, but there's 30 million people crammed into it. Wow. Yeah. And, but then also with that, by, by poverty, there's very little, there's always been a history of kind of poor governance, poor leadership. But also there's very little natural resource. There's no oil. There's nothing to develop, stimulate the economy there. So people live by, even now, people live by scraping out an existence on these steep, steep, steep hillsides. And they chip out these terraces by hand. Some of the terraces are the size of your kitchen table. And they, you can't.
1: Stinking terrifying.
0: Yeah. And you can't get a tractor on that. You, You have to plow that by hand or with an ox. And then people plant basic grains, millet, rice, corn, and potatoes. And they live off that throughout the year. Maybe there's some small trade that they do with neighboring communities. Maybe there's some small dairy farming where they milk the cow by hand and sell butter. But basically, you're looking at places with a per capita income of around $1 a day, uh, maybe a little bit more now. And so these are just some of the most materially poor communities on Earth and these are places that if you that
1: is such an important distinction materially poor because i think when i've worked in slums there is a natural there's a lot of people you can build businesses because there are so many people but when you when i've worked with villages and i think what you're describing there's not those people there's not shared resources it's just you're just there by yourself living off the land
0: exactly and any products you want to sell if it's medicinal plants that grow in the forest, if it's a basket you've woven, you have to carry that on your back for five days to get to a road. And you can't compete with other manufacturers of those same goods because the remoteness of the isolation of these villages puts them at this tremendous economic disadvantage. And that perpetuates the cycle. And so that's basically setting the scene for these remote villages in Nepal And so that's looking at it through, you know, the challenges they face. If you get sick in these villages, it's a three-day walk to the nearest hospital, which doesn't have any medicine or a doctor at it. You know, you can imagine that scenario. On the other hand, what you see in these communities are people who really know how to work together. There's this Parma system where when you look at the way that rice is planted, when you plant rice, you have to basically, you plant all the seedlings. You plant all the seeds in one nursery in a little bed, and then you have to transplant them into the fields. But your window to transplant those seedlings is very short. It's like one day they get to a certain height and they have to be transplanted immediately or they won't take. And so your average farmer who has enough fields to feed his family or her family, they physically can't transplant their seedlings in time because there's too many of them. So the whole village comes to your field on Monday. And that farmer, you know, Jess, if you're the farmer, you're responsible for feeding everybody. And you bring the beer and everybody comes and everyone transplants your rice on Monday. And then on Tuesday, everybody goes to the next person's field. And on Wednesday, everyone goes to the next person's field. And through that communal work, people survive. But alone, nobody would survive. And that's a really important template. And one of the important things about looking at these communities about how we survive as humans and the importance of working together. And there it's life or death, which is why these communities were so willing to contribute. You know, when we would build a school building, it's not uncommon to see each household would put in like 20 days of labor, just carrying mud or digging out a playground. In America, we would never see that. People are generally mistrustful of each other. And that's one of the real, I think, flaws in Our thinking as a species right now is when we look at the way the U.S., I'm just using U.S. government as an example, but when we look at the way that we implement foreign aid and we try to help poorer countries, we're not going there to try to learn from them. We're going there to try to implement a certain set of programs or to achieve a certain set of objectives. There's no curiosity in the process. But if you look at these communities in Nepal, there's so much that we have to learn from them about childcare, the way that young children are taken care of by the elderly. It's a perfect system. Instead, in America, we have daycare and we have nursing homes. In these communities, if you also look at challenges around carbon, like these are communities that live in almost a closed system. They get fodder from the forest they graze their animals which fertilize the forest, they use the manure to grow their crops. And these communities are more or less carbon neutral, if not carbon negative.
1: That's amazing, yeah. We have so much to learn from that experience. I know that you're now in this transition coming back to the United States and learning what it means to belong. Something that struck me so much in our conversations was about this idea of surrounding yourself with people that allow you to fuck up. Yeah. And that give you that permission to have grace for you.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have to, failure is such an important part of life. And again, it goes back to that idea of the practice of letting go, like letting go of things, you have to practice it. You also, in the sense of, trying it over and over, but also practice it like yoga in the sense of make it part of your way you are. And and you need to surround yourself with people who are going to not judge you or blame you as you take risks and as you screw up. And, you know, and it's the kind of thing where for me right now, transitioning back to America, you know, I don't have a solid paycheck. I don't have and there's a temptation to go get a square job so I can meet my expenses and I can
1: a square job.
0: Yeah, a normal job like Square. <laughs> for, for podcast listeners, I did that. I did the little uh, Pulp Fiction square symbol. But there's a temptation to go for that security. But I, I believe that if I follow the things that I'm passionate about, and if I follow my heart, that it's worth taking that risk. And even if I do fall, like even if I do completely go broke and I can't make my mortgage payments and so forth, and I have to go back to my parents with my tail between my legs, there's, that's a, there's a grace in relying upon your community and other people and trusting them. And as long as I'm not taking advantage of my parents and I'm saying, okay, listen, guys, I need a float here. I'm 43, but I, if it comes down to that worst case scenario, that's like the worst thing in the American society is if you're a failure in that sense. But what it actually does is it gives my parents an opportunity to support me in a real, tangible, meaningful way. And thank God that that I have that opportunity to take that, to be supported in that way. And you just got to be brave.
1: Yeah, I think it's a brave thing to rely on each other. And it makes me think about you talking about these communities who it comes so naturally to and how it's just not a natural response because we are so individualistic here in the States and we have so much trauma. There's so much trauma around being vulnerable and being judged for that. You're in this season right now of learning what it means to belong. You've, you've done such an incredible tenure of supporting other people's stories and sharing other people's stories. You're a filmmaker as well. And now you're getting to rewrite your own story, or, or maybe even write it for yourself, because you're not focused on building these other structures for other people. What? How are you approaching that? What is that like for you?
0: There's story that's kind of being written for me right now about coming back to America, where I'm living on. I'm living in the house that my great great grandfather built in Vermont, and my cousin and I have taken over the family property. And he's an incredible artist and a potter. And there's a few apartments on this, on the property. And we're all kind of living together in this extended family way. And one of the things that for me has been really interesting is that's not very conventional here, but learning how to live with my family. My great, my aunt lives with us and she's getting on in years and we have to spend a lot of time supporting her. And I've had the privilege of living this life where I'm running around and doing whatever I want. And now suddenly I'm like, getting my roots down. And it's things like that, that make me feel like my story isn't done yet. So I think I'll probably continue to try to understand myself and my world through focusing on others for a little while anyway.
1: How are you approaching that? Because I think that's so hard to sit with yourself. I have felt in my own journey, pivoting and allowing my purpose to evolve is hard to do. Because it, yeah, for me, it requires so much quiet, And I don't have that easy purpose. I think it was easy to have purpose when I was working in human trafficking work. That was like a gold standard when I told people what I did. It was – I was in the – I felt good about it. And now, like you are, I'm in that transition phase of moving away from this thing that's very – it's weird to say. It's like luxurious to be able to say you work in human rights or –
0: Totally. And and that's like huge status. It's like – you're able to say that to somebody you meet at a dinner party and everyone's like oh wow i wish i could do what you did right and you get used to that and i think that we're afraid of letting go of that identity and becoming just a normal person again when we've been normal people the whole time we just happen to have a job that sounds good at dinner parties and you know i would say that what's helped me the most i mean i'm not spending hours every morning doing yoga and Zen meditation. Like that's not my route into this. The way I think that I'm approaching it is by deliberately spending time with people who are really different than me, like going out of my way, even here in America, to try to do things that help me make friends with people who aren't also human rights defenders or humanitarians or mountain climbers or adventurers. But people who are going through their life in very different ways, it it helps. Just gives me that perspective that's humbling. And being able to fall in love with those people really helps me fall in love with myself, which is, again, ultimately what this process is about, is just trusting yourself in your own weird, crooked path through life.
1: And just being celebrating the ordinary, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's all we have is the ordinary. I mean, even you know, I'm sure you can speak to this, Jess, is like, even though, even in the most, like, glorious moments of our lives, like the things, the awards that we got, the, all the accolades and the things that we had, like, those are very fleeting. They feel good for a little bit, but at some point that starts to feel ordinary. And you get stressed out about, oh, when am I, what's the next award? How am I going to raise the next $100,000? How am I going to raise the next, you know? And, Ultimately, there's this great equalizer where the struggles of somebody, of Bill Gates trying to run his foundation and end polio is not that different than the struggles that my dairy farming friends face trying to keep their herd healthy. It's not that one takes an incredible amount of brain power more than the other. It just happens to be where our lives have helped us end up.
1: I think it's so full circle to hear how you're coming back to yourself after learning that from these people who are living in abject poverty, but maybe have more of an emotional wealth than some of us do sometimes here in the states. In that community, I know you're working on some stories. So your last project, the last Honey Hunter, yeah, came out a few years back. So that was a project with National Geographic, and now. Yeah, tell us, tell us what you're working on. How can we see some of the work?
0: Oh, yeah, ways to kind of, like, follow me along in my adventures. The Last Honey Hunter is out on Vimeo, so all the listeners can check it out and watch it, and then we can that, – that podcast will be hard to keep to 45 minutes. That story is long and wonderful and spooky and weird and amazing.
1: And it's gorgeous film work. Please do check it out. We will leave the links in the show notes. It is really incredible.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. And then there's other films of mine out there in the world. Um, you can go to my website, jetbutterflies.com. It's a nickname I've picked up along the way. But there's other films. There's one that will be released on the Yeti Coolers YouTube channel in, a, I think, about a week, which is a film about, two, about me and two women friends of mine in Nepal. One is Nepal's first punk musician, and the other is Nepal's leading mountain guide. And we go on this adventure where we're supposed to ride motorcycles and climb mountains, but ends up being more of a reflection on why I wanted to ride motorcycles and climb mountains and how the much wiser women in the group had a much different perspective on life. So that's how that's gonna be out in Yeti. So stay tuned.
1: Thank you so much for being a part of this and for being a part of my life. I know you mentioned that you don't understand, you don't quite make the connection about how you have inspired other people, but I am so grateful for you. So thank you. Well, thanks,
0: Jess. I'm really grateful for you and for this time we've had. It's really nice to have a moment to pontificate upon.
1: I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at Algo First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time.